Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. And, um, and again, this is going to be part 2, picking up where we left off last week. And I, I am going to go back. I do want to start reading again from verse 11, where we were last week. We're going to pick up today from verse 17, but I want to go back to read verse 11, because again, it all flows together. I want us to get that back into our minds. So Acts chapter 3, verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, and again, he is referring to this lame man, that Peter and John had healed on their way to prayer in the temple. Uh, while the lame man clung to Peter and John, the healed lame man, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, The God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given uh, the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. When I was in uh, seminary, I mentioned, actually mentioned this professor a minute ago, Dr. Lawler. He was, uh, he was an interesting guy. He grew to be one of my favorite professors. He was probably one of the hardest I had. And um, in fact, I remember my last uh, semester there, I actually had an elective I had to fill. And I came in and I told my wife, I said, I I decided to take Dr. Lawler's minor profit class. She looked at me and was like, you're nuts. Why did you do that? Why didn't you take a ministry class or something like that instead, you know? And I'm like, I know, but I just learned so much from him. So I took it, and it was actually in that class on the Minor Prophets. And uh, we had this, one day we had this exam, and his exams were pretty brutal. And they, they just, cons- they were all in Hebrew. And, um, and you just had to decipher what was being said and where, where it came from and what its significant was and significance was. And this one particular exam was, was really brutal. And the next, the next day, we're sitting in class, and to this day, I believe he did this on purpose, because this is just the way he was. He's, he shows up late to class. And uh, so we're all sitting there early, 
or, uh, you know, and, and there's a visitor sitting in the back, and we're kind of just ignoring her, and pe- people start talking about the exam. And, uh, man, I can't believe you asked it, and, uh, you know, this and this and this, and, and uh, kind of complaining a little bit. And uh, he finally walks in the classroom, and uh, he says, oh, sorry, I'm late. He said, uh, let's get going here. He goes, oh, by the way, before I go, I'd like to, uh, to just point out, introduce you to my daughter who's sitting in the back. And right away, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I'm like, dude, did I just say anything? And fortunately, I don't think I did. I think I was wearing something else, but you could see it. all these guys were like, I, know, I just complained about how big of a jerk Dr. Lawler is, and here's his daughter going to tell him everything, you know, and, and um, right, and, and you're sitting there going, if, if I would have known that was his daughter, that would have changed some things, right? And again, that's what Peter is, is doing here with this, this message. He's saying, hey, if you would understand who this was, Jesus, the righteous one, the servant of Yahweh, you truly to understand it would change some things. In fact, who he is demands that you change some things. And that's where he goes with this message. Considering who Jesus is, like we talked about last week, all that Old Testament terminology, you need to grasp who he is. You need to change. And I think even for us, we sit here, week after week, and, and we can grow cold in our passion for Christ, and, and, and we can stop seeking after him. We can stop seeking to understand his, not just his grace and his mercy and the beauty of the gospel, which I think is a lifelong process, just um, constantly being renewed day by day in our, our awe of the beauty of that, but also understanding his, his commandments and what he's instructed us to do, and, and, and that's a lifelong process, and I think sometimes we just stop doing that, and we stop seeking him. So I think this applies to us as, as well today. Am I still seeking Jesus? Am I still seeking to understand and grasp who he is and allowing that knowledge to change my heart and change my life? This sermon in verse 17 takes a little bit of a turn. I left my clicker down here on the front row. It takes a little bit of a turn, and uh, you'll see that reflected in, in the terminology here and uh, in the language. He, he says, and now, and now, brothers, and he turns this back on him. How are we going to respond to this? How are we going to respond to this news of, of who Jesus is, this truth of who Jesus is? And he says, now, listen, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. Okay? They're saying that their rejection of Christ was due to their ignorance of who he was. They didn't grasp it. They didn't understand that. Right? And, and we see this. We see Jesus' prayer from the cross. Remember? Father, forgive them, for they... Know not what they do. Uh, we see other places in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2.8, Paul writes, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul writes his own testimony. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, we see the word ignorant come up again. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, Paul writes, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And one other. Because this is what I think, I want to unpack this just a minute, this word ignorance. It's not just, oh, they didn't know, right? 
Get 2 Timothy 3, 5 through 7. For people will be having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. This is the ignorance that Peter is talking about here. He's not absolving them. He's not going, oh, you guys just didn't know, so it's okay. No, this, this, this isn't that they were uninformed. It wasn't ignorance without opportunity, right? The people stood there. They heard Jesus preach in the same place. They heard Jesus present himself as the cornerstone that would be rejected. Daryl Bach, a commentator, writes this. It was not an ignorance of a lack of opportunity to understand, but an ignorance and failing to perceive with understanding. So you can hear all about Jesus, but unless you choose to believe it and internalize it, you're acting in ignorance. That's this passage right here. Always learning, always getting knowledge, but never truly embracing and grasping who Jesus is. And again, I think sometimes that does come to bear on us where we sit in our pews on Sunday morning, right? We learn, we learn a lot, but can we learn a lot and still be ignorant of all that Jesus is? And in that ignorance then, does it play into our choices and our values? We are guilty of acting in ignorance when we hold on to our own ways and our own reasoning. When we don't seek to know and understand all that Jesus is and what he's calling us to. The people had heard the truth. They're just acting in ignorance. Choosing not to embrace it. We're going to see here in a minute that Peter doesn't give that as an excuse for them. They acted in ignorance. But God's purposes were still accomplished through Christ. Their ignorant actions didn't thwart the plan and purposes of God, right? Verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is Christ, would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. A suffering Messiah was always part of God's plan. We talked about this last week. The suffering servant fulfills the prophetic word. Jesus' death was not arbitrary. It was not an accident. It was not some mistake due to the Jews' ignorance, or due to the power of Rome or the sway of the religious leaders. If Jesus' death had been deserved, and if it had not been part of God's plan, then God would not have raised him, and God would not have vindicated and glorified him. But because Jesus is raised, we have to deal with him. We have to acknowledge who he is. He is significant for us. Right? The reality of the resurrection, the fact that this was all part of God's plan, then provides the basis and rationale for the call to repent that Peter is going to get to in just a minute. Right? So Jesus may not have fit into their box, but that didn't change the truth of who Jesus was, and so it is for us today, right? Jesus doesn't fit into the boxes that our world creates for him, but it doesn't matter. And we can sit here and we can say, well, I think this, and I reason this about Jesus, and, and this is what I believe about Jesus. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you think or reason or believe. It's the truth of who he is, and you have to deal with that. And that's what Peter's calling these people to. You got it wrong, you acted in ignorance. As a side, this struck me as I was meditating on this passage this week. Um, I love this. It comes out here too. God reversed their ignorant, sinful actions. 
and use them for his glory and his purpose. Right? Again, just a couple thoughts that struck me in this is that God uses ignorance. God uses the ignorance of people. And God's not thwarted by what man does regardless of how sinful or wicked it may be. It's encouraging for us, isn't it? That God uses sinful people. They don't thwart his plans. They carry out his plans. Hmm. So we don't have to panic over who's in control. We don't have to panic over what decisions the Supreme Court is making. We're not indifferent towards it. And we lament injustice. And we lament uh, the immorality and sin that pervades our culture and our human institutions. But we never panic. Right? We never lose hope. So if you're tempted to do that, just remember that when Peter talks about the rejection of Jesus in the crucifixion here in Acts 3.18, which was the ultimate injustice and sin, he says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And I think this would be a great encouragement. As this church, the church that's born here in Acts, as it continues to go on and face suffering and persecution at the hands of the Jews and at the hands of the Romans, I think it would serve as a great encouragement to them to remember that God fulfills and God's plans aren't thwarted by evil people who cease to put a stop to the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is the Lord of history, and anything that happens to his church is under his control. And so this is why the psalmist writes in Psalm 2 that the one who sits enthroned in heaven laughs as the rulers of the world make their plans and do their thing, and he laughs. Because he is the God of history. And here in Acts 3, he's the God who accomplished his purposes. Look at the, the words through his Christ. Another little jab there too, by the way. His Christ. His servant. So you rejected him. You killed him. So, in our minds, the logic would go, so you deserve condemnation and death and hell because you guys did a really, really bad thing. You killed the Son of God, right? But that's not where the sermon goes. Now they have a second chance to get things right in regard to Jesus by repenting and turning back. Verse 19 Repent, therefore. Right? Consider the word therefore, right? When we see that word, interpreting scripture, cause us to consider what was said before this. What was the therefore? All, all the things I just said. You, you killed, you traded him for a murderer, you denied him before Pontius Pilate. Repent. That's the truth. That's the reality of your sin. The heaviness of your sin, your rejection of Christ, your misinterpretation of who Christ is. Repent. It's a great word. By the way, I just said this a minute ago, but right, he uses this word, which, which demonstrates to us that their ignorance wasn't an excuse. Their ignorance wasn't an excuse. Their ignorance was an excuse. He wouldn't say you have to repent. He'd say, oh, it was okay. He just didn't know. And this wouldn't strike the Jewish hearer as being odd. If you go to Numbers, there was allowances in the, in the law for sins of ignorance. So a Jew hearing this, like, they understood this. Like, even our sins that we commit in ignorance, there were sacrifices that had to be made for those. They would understand that sins committed in ignorance are still sins. They still violate holy and righteous God. they got to be atoned for. 
So repent. The rejection of the chosen one of God was wicked and foolish. Here's the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of God's grace. The healing that they witnessed here in Acts chapter 3 is presenting them with an opportunity to now respond the right way and change their position on Jesus. They're getting a second chance. I play golf. I use that terminology very, very loosely. Um, one of the greatest things that I take advantage of in golf is a mulligan. You know what a mulligan is? It's a do-over. I probably need one on every single stroke. Um, it's the do-over. You shank it into the woods. Ah, put it back. Do it again. You know, you know the shot. The hopes that you get it right the second time, right? This was the ultimate mulligan. You killed. You traded. You denied. Repent. This word repentance, it means to turn, abandon previous ways of thinking, previous ways of believing and acting, change one's mind, change direction, going the wrong way. I remember it was probably about my freshman year of high school. My buddy and I had made the basketball team at our school. We thought we were pretty, pretty cool. And so we're this... Uh, you know, newly crowned varsity basketball team members. So our church was part of a big basketball tournament this one weekend, and it was a big outreach thing, and there was like literally hundreds and hundreds of kids there, and, and so we're playing in this basketball tournament, and uh, we thought we were pretty hot stuff because we're on this church team, but we're varsity basketball players, you know. And so uh, we're playing, and there's a scrum for the basketball, and I don't remember who came out with it first, Jeff or I. Uh, one of us did, and we're like going down the court, and we're thinking we're, you know, all hot and we're passing it back and forth. You can hear people yelling, you know, and you're like, yeah, they're yelling for us. And, and I don't know what we're going to do. We got together. Neither one of us could dunk, you know, but a really cool layup, I guess. I don't know. But, you know, so we're passing it back and forth. People yelling, and our teammates are yelling, and all of a sudden it registers with me what our teammates are yelling. Hey, it's the wrong basket. Wrong basket. You know, and like throwing it back and forth, and all of a sudden you're like, bummer. And I remember, like, I think it was me, I like, caught it, and I stopped, and in doing so, traveled, so I didn't turn the basketball over, um, but I was going the wrong way. <laughs> it, it was going the wrong basket. thought it was cool. I wasn't, not even close, not even a little, got what I, got what I deserved, humbling. Um, that's what Peter's yelling here. As you're running, you're running the wrong direction. Turn around. Repent. Turn. Repentance is this putting off. Stop doing this. Turn. It's the putting on. Embrace a new way of thinking, a new way of acting. I wish we had time to unpack it. You want to see a really cool place that the theme turn and return is used in the Bible. Uh, Ruth chapter 1. The word turn comes up over and over again. It describes Ruth and her turning and her turning and all that came with it. That's it. Ruth became a completely different person. That's what Peter is calling to. These words indicate remorse. Throughout scripture, repentance is associated with sackcloth and ashes, right? It's great imagery for the Lenten season for us. This direction change involves acknowledging sin, repenting of our ignorance, lining up with God, turning away from our sin and ourself. It involves faith in Jesus, acknowledging who Jesus is, and allowing him to change our thinking. And here's the thing that strikes me in this passage, too, this call for repentance, Peter was not preaching in the red light district of Jerusalem. 
Peter was not preaching down on the avenue where all the bars were. Peter was preaching this sermon in the temple to pious Jews who were there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to pray. These were the religious people who thought they were good because of their religiousness. Is that a word? I don't know. But they thought they were good because of their piety. They're the ones, Peter, saying, you need to repent. And I do, I think that that speaks to us. It's a good check, especially, man, and I had to work through this as a kid too, right? So this is those, you grew up in church, you grew up going to Sunday school, right? You had Miss Rachel, Miss Josh, Miss Wendy, Ignite, youth group. And sometimes you're like, oh, I do all the stuff. I got all the coupons for the carnival, all right? Went to TLC. I, you know what? That doesn't make you a Christian. And, and, and this is a good reminder that that call to repent may speak, be speaking to some of you this morning, adults, and, right, and it gets harder as we go along because as we go along, we've built up this image now. We have to protect it. For me to let this image down, I can't do that. That would be really humbling and humiliating. Man, humble yourself. It's okay. Embrace that. There be no greater cause of rejoicing. He's speaking to the pious Jews. They had it wrong. Listen, this turning is painful. Acknowledging our guilt, acknowledging our sin is painful. Remember Narnia? I, I forget the name of one of the kids. Peter, what was the other one? The, the, the bad one. Edmund, yeah. Right? No, it wasn't Edmund. Who was the one who became a dragon? It wasn't Edmund. Oh, Eustace. Eustace, thank you. Remember Eustace becomes a dragon? And, um, and then he has to get the scales peeled off, and there's a scene that's being described, and Aslan is, is pulling the, 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 the scales off, and it's, it's painful. He's writhing in pain at how much suffering there is involved in this. And that, that's repentance. Like, it's not easy. It's hard. It hurts. But the pain of staying the same will always be so much greater than the pain of changing. Right? Catches up. I remember a few years back, it, was, it, it wasn't, the, wasn't the last wilderness trip. It may have been the one before it. Greg, you can refresh my memory if I'm getting this wrong. But one of the things we do in the first afternoon of wilderness, we, we just kind of gauge a group as they get into the, the, the Algonquin, the, the park up there in Canada, and, and you kind of gauge them and how well they're moving and working together, and then you kind of make decisions. One of the great things about Algonquin is you have these lakes that you're staying on, but there's generally one or two ways, maybe three sometimes even, how you can get from lake to lake. And you kind of observe the group, and you kind of have this root plan, but you're like, ah, oh, this group's not, you know, this needs a little bit more time. It's not necessarily a good or bad thing. You just kind of, and so we're going to change the route. We're going to go this way. We're going to get to the same lake, but we're going to go this way instead or this way instead, and you kind of gauge that. And so we'd gone the first day, and, and we're like, oh, this group's a little, a little slower, but we'll see. And then the next day uh, we go, and, and we start our day, and it is dragging on. And we get to this portage. You remember this, Greg? We get to this portage, and it was like 2,000 meters, and we make them go down this portage. And as we're going, we're like, we'll see how long it takes them. And it took, I mean, it was taking forever. And, I mean, they were halfway through it. And I'm looking at the clock, and I, Greg and I and, and Jimmy and, and Carrie, I can remember who I, we like, kind of get, I'm like, we've we got to change the route. I mean, we, we can't go. We're, we're, you know, we're here, and we're going to get to this lake, and we're, we're, we were doing this. Well, there was a way to go, like, this way, lush. So we got them all to the end of this portage. We told them to hold up, wait, to not get down the lake. And uh, we got there, and I said, uh, and it was hard. It was a hard portage. And uh, I get there, and I say, guys, uh, we're going to turn around. Oh, man, they were mad. Woo, remember, Greg? They were angry. 
And, um, and I'm like, guys, I'm like, do, do you trust me? No, you know. <laughs> um, but we knew. We knew. And I'm like, you got to trust us on this. You got to trust us. We turn around, we're going to do this board. And that's what they were at. We're going to do this one again. And, uh, but what they didn't know, we're going to do that one again, we'll go back across this lake, do like two small portages, and then we're there. They had like three other portages that were that same length if we had kept going, right? So that turning, man, they were angry. And it hurt. And it was a pain to go back along the same portage we just did. But we had their best interest in mind. We knew that this is what is best for them. We knew that, that this is going to result in something better. And if we just let them go the way they want to go, because they wanted to go that way. And I was tempted to go, okay. And we'll still be walking at 3 this morning, three in the morning. because you know, you know. And, um, But no. And that's what this is like. God is calling us. He's saying repent. And our world makes this right. This is a bad word. Repent means you're bad. Repent means that God wants to impose his, his uh, restrictions on you or this or this. And what we don't understand is repentance is one of the most grace-filled words in the entire Bible. Because it's calling us away from our sinful ways. It's calling us away from the destruction we're walking towards. And it's leading us back to God and back to a place of blessing and a place of restoration. So we turn and it's hard and it hurts. And it forces us to admit some things about ourselves. But why do we do it? Peter goes on in his sermon because it leads to great blessing. And these are the blessings. And I wish we had time to unpack all these in detail, but our sin is blotted out in verse 19. This word blotted out means it's obliterated. It's gone. It's not seen anymore. Blotted out. It brings times of refreshing from the Lord. Verse 20. Times, plural, of refreshing. I think that times is plural. I think what that means is it's indicating is that it's not just future, it's present. There's a present reality to this refreshment as well. As well. Um, you ever walked, this word refreshing, it, it literally means like breathing space. Uh, being revived, cooling, being refreshed. Y'all like know when you get on vacation and get to your spot. We have a couple places our family's gone over the years. One, one cabin up north, and then there's a place down in Hocking Hills, down in Ohio, where my dad has rented. And, and both those places I love. And uh, you know how it is like you you kind of you've been busy at work and busy packing, and then and I, like I walk into that cabin, and just kind of like <sighs> I'm here. And, and it just, you just kind of feel that release. Right? It's refreshing. When we repent, we feel that. When we let go of our own ways. Jesus had said in, in Luke 13, people's rejection, he said, behold your house, Israel. Your house is forsaken. It's, it's desolate. Your house is desolate. Until... Right? Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until you receive me, that desolation remains. The refreshing that comes from repentance, it counteracts that desolation that we live in when we live in our sin. That's what repentance brings. And lastly, it participate in the hope of Christ's return and the restoring of all things. Right? It goes down to say that in verses 20-21 that Jesus will come and 
and all things will be restored. That word restoration, right, it implies that things aren't right well, aren't, aren't well now. Right? We, we know that, we feel that, and when I repent, I can look forward in hope to the restoration of all things. Hey, you've heard me share this before. One of the most profound things that were said to me in the, in the, in the course of pain was, was when we lost one of our, our babies and, and our doctor. We're there in the hospital, and Kathy's ready to go back to the procedure to, to remove that, that, that baby from her womb that had, had passed away. And, and, um, and our doctor, who was, who was a believer, as a Christian, and, 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 and he said to me, he looks at me and he said, this is, uh, Craig, this is a reminder that things aren't the way they're supposed to be, isn't it? That was one of the most encouraging things he could have said to me in that moment. I long for restoration. They're not the way they're supposed to be, but they will be. And if I repent and I, and, I, and I have a right view of Jesus Christ and I've embraced him as my Savior and Lord, I look forward to that now. I don't look forward to death and judgment. That's not my destiny. There's a new hope. So there's the blotting out of my sin. There's refreshment. There's this restoration of Jesus returns, right? But here's the other side of that. Refusal to repent and submit to Jesus leads to destruction. And this is where he says in 22 and 23, and I don't have time, this quote in 22 and 23 is linked back to to statements made to Israel in Deuteronomy and Leviticus about uh, obedience and being cut off. 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, sadly, the people of God didn't repent. They didn't acknowledge Jesus. They're under God's wrath because of it. But we have to get this part right, too. We can't tell just half the story of who Jesus is. I don't like to needlessly criticize. It's one of the things I hate the most about social media. Something happens, and immediately, all the posts are instant criticism of everything. I don't want to be careful, but... It's what concerns me a little bit when I see things like this, like this He Gets Us campaign. Right? I remember watching an NFL playoff game when I first started seeing these, these commercials. I remember seeing the first one going, oh, I mean, this is how nebulous it was in my mind at least. Like, this is one of those you know, campaigns to get us to think that Jesus affirms everybody and loves everybody. And, you know, and, and sadly, I didn't see anything different in any of those con- that campaign went on. And, and I followed the trail, you know, if you're interested. In and and I, it caught my attention, and then it became ad, these ads in the Super Bowl, and they're like, hey, follow this to the website. And I was like, okay, you know, give it a chance. I went to the website, and, and here's the problem. When we portray Jesus as just a nice guy, a, a, a good person who, who, who gave us a good example, and, and calls us to, to copy his, his take on injustice and, and love and goodness, like, yes, 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 yes. And I'm glad people are talking about Jesus. But listen, when you go to a place and there's no mention at all of repentance and sin and judgment, it is an incomplete picture of Jesus. And I think sometimes in our presentation of Jesus, thinking we're leading people to Jesus, we have to be very careful because if we're not presenting the whole picture of who Jesus is, we're actually leading people away from him. And Peter portrays the whole picture. Yes, Jesus is good. And yes, Jesus is kind. And yes, you killed him, and you have a second chance to be blessed and receive mercy and grace. But if you don't, you will be judged. And if I leave that part of the story out, then I'm wrong. And that's a wrong view of Jesus. We must tell the whole story story and the complete picture of who Jesus is. 
These are just the, those are the passages from Leviticus and Deuteronomy that just talk about the same thing, about not grasping the atonement, not allowing yourself to be afflicted. You'll be cut off. Whoever is not afflicted, that's an atonement passage, speaking of the day of atonement. And whoever doesn't acknowledge their sin will be cut off. It's the same terminology that Peter uses here in Acts. The refusal to repent ignores the work God is clearly doing. Verse 24 All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel in those days who came after him also proclaimed these days. Saying, if you're refusing, you're missing it, Israel. You're missing it. Everything God is doing. And again, it's possible. Right? I think the, the, the transition to us and the warning to us, it sits here for, you're like, yeah, we sit here and, 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 and we hear the stories. We see prophecy fulfilled. Romans 1 tells us that God makes it plain in creation. Like The evidence of God is, is everywhere, and when we refuse to repent, we're ignoring just like Israel did. God is there. He's present. He's given us his word. Don't ignore it. Repentance or a refusal to repent ignores that. And he closes his sermon. I feel like it's, it's, it's this appeal to the Jews who are, who are there that he's preaching to. I think he's wanting them to recognize the privileged position that they've been placed in, the blessings that they've been offered. He says this in verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenants. If anyone should be sensitive to these things, it should be Israel, the ones to whom the prophets spoke. They ought to be the beneficiaries. And Peter's imploring them to step into what is theirs as God's covenant people. Al Mohler writes this, Jesus is the culmination of the Jewish story, and they should have recognized that God was fulfilling his promises. But it wasn't automatic, was it? Just because they were born, that's the whole point of Peter's sermon. You should know this, but it all comes down to what you do with Jesus. And really, even in the Old Testament, that's not anything new. Even in the Old Testament, they still had to exercise faith they still had to walk in obedience or suffer exile, right? That's the appeal to us this morning. The point of the whole thing, the reason why Peter is imploring them so hard, he's like, listen, here it is, right? God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to make your life miserable by calling you to repentance. No, to bless you from turning every one of you from your wickedness. To bless you. God raised up his servant, Jesus. God sent Jesus to bless you. But you have to embrace all that he is. The offer of repentance and grace and forgiveness, yes. And also the understanding that if I don't bow the knee to him and meet him as my savior, I will one day meet him as my judge. And those are the two options. There's only two. Right? You can come back. You can change course. You can run to the right basket on the basketball court. Unlike that bonehead did that morning, you know, and 
I'm going to close with this. Luke's going to come up here in just a minute. This is from uh, Charles Dickens, Christmas Carol. This is the scene there at the end, towards the end of the, the story, when Scrooge is with the, the spirits of uh, the future in the cemetery. Here's their conversation. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. He advanced toward it trembling. The phantom was exactly as it had been, but he dreaded that he saw some uh, new meeting in its solemn shape now. Scrooge says this, Before I draw nearer to that stone to which you point, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of the things that will be, or are they the shadows of the things that may only be? Still the ghost pointed downward to the grave by which it stood. Scrooge goes on, Men's courses will, will foreshadow certain ends to which, if preserved in, they must lead, said Scrooge. But, but if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is true. Say it is thus with what you have shown me. The spirit was immovable as ever. Scrooge crept towards the grave, trembling as he went. And following the finger, read upon the stone of the neglected grave his own name, Ebenezer Scrooge. Am I that man who lay upon the bed, he cried upon his knees? The finger pointed from the grave to him and back again. No, spirit, oh no, no, the finger was still there. Spirit, he cried, tight clutching at his robe. Hear me, I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been, but for this intercourse, why show me this if I am past all hope? For the first time, the hand appeared to shake. Good spirit, he pursued, as down upon the ground he fell before it. Your nature intercedes for me and pities me. Assure me that I yet may change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. The kind hand trembled. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out my lessons that they teach. Oh, tell me that I may sponge away the writing on this stone. And you know the story. Ebenezer Scrooge wakes up the next morning in London and he has a second chance. He can alter the course of his life through repentance, through turning. And here's the refreshing. Here was his response on Christmas morning. I don't know what to do, cried Scrooge, laughing and crying in the same breath and making a perfect lacoon of himself. I don't even know what that means, but I guess it's a, with his stockings on. I'm as light as a feather, I'm as happy as an angel, I'm as merry as a schoolboy, I'm as giddy as a drunken man, a merry Christmas to everybody, a happy new year to all the world, hello there, whoop, hello. Refreshment, turning, the course can be altered, but that time will run out, and the one who doesn't listen to the prophet, the messianic prophet, will be judged, turn, turn before it's too late.